Hello and welcome to Dr. Fitness USA, the show. Exercise is medicine, strength training is stronger medicine. With your host, Batista Grimaud, and myself, Stephen Hersey, a.k.a. Dr. Fitness USA. By expanding our vision of exercise, we interface it with medicine and business, bridging the gap between fitness, business, and medical professionals. The show is designed to uplift and inspire a world of healthier and stronger people. Click the link to subscribe and never miss an episode because if your mind can conceive it and your heart can believe it, then Dr. Fitness USA, the show, will inspire you to achieve it. Subscribe now. Today we have a very special guest, Frank King. Frank King is a suicide prevention speaker, a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years, and a full-time stand-up comedian. He fought a lifetime battle with depression and chronic suicidality, turning that long, dark journey into eight TEDx talks and insights on mental health awareness. Only one other person on the planet has eight TEDx talks, and that's Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. Depression and suicide run in his family. He thought about killing himself more times than he can count. He came close enough to dying by suicide that he can tell you what the barrel of his gun tastes like. He uses his life lessons to start the conversation, giving people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences. He believes that where there's humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there's life. Nobody dies laughing. And so today the conversation is about suicide prevention as a health and safety issue. Frank, welcome to the Dr. Fitness USA show. We're very honored to have you with us today. Well, and I am honored as well. And, and you know, I'm working on a cruise ship. I am parked at the port of Costa Maya, Mexico. I did my three shows last night, three shows in a week, and they pay me not a bad engagement, I must admit. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. So tell me, comedy and suicide prevention, how does that work together? Well, if you think about it, the world's first comedian was the court jester. And the court jester's job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. I believe where there's humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there's life. And then nobody dies laughing. And personally, uh, depression and suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide nine years later. My mother and I found her. I was four years old and I screamed for days. And as you mentioned, uh, I came close enough to ending my life in April of 2010 that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. <laughs> well, you're here, so we're very glad yes. about that. <laughs> So you've had a lot of serious uh, setbacks here. I uh, actually made a note of it. It said that you had a, uh, a, a aortic valve replacement, a double bypass, 
a heart attack and three stents. So I can ask you how you survived it, which I will, but before that, your life has been about expressing yourself for people who suffer from, from suicide. So did the suicide tendencies come up for you genetically or running in your family? Or did they start to develop after you had these uh, physical ailments? The depression, thoughts of suicide are in my DNA, as is uh, high cholesterol. Thank you, mom. And I inherited a bad heart valve from my dad. I had a bicuspid aortic valve, which, by the way, I've had, uh, had a replacement in 95. I uh, got a human valve. And, you know, it had miles on it when I got it. So we weren't sure how long it would last, but it lasts almost 18 years. And then I had to replace again with a mechanical valve, which should go the rest of my life. Uh, and the first heart operation, I was terribly depressed. Uh, the second one, apparently the drugs were better. My wife, my wife said, you know, the first one, you were horribly depressed. And the second one, you sailed right through it. But my depression, it wasn't due to the, it was situationally due to the heart surgery. But I was already, you know, living with depression and thoughts of suicide prior to that. Okay, how deep was the suicide? You see, when you say that you put a gun in your mouth and you can taste the barrel, Mm -hmm. what was the forethought that brought on that sudden occurrence that you would attempt such a silly thing? Well, it was a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Uh, In the last recession, my wife and I lost everything we worked for for 25 years in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And in in suicidality, there's a three-legged stool of suicidality. One is social isolation. Two is you've made the decision you can kill yourself. And the third one is something called burdensomeness. Many people who are suicidal believe firmly that the world would be better off without them. And I had a million-dollar life insurance policy. So I knew my wife would be better off financially without me. She'd be brokenhearted, but she'd no longer be broke. I could restore her financially if I... If I kill myself because she'd get a check for a million dollars. The problem was having sold insurance straight out of college, I knew that the policy had a two-year suicide clause and turns out it only had it 22 months. So I had to wait 60 days to kill myself. Thank goodness. Otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. So what was the change of mindset? You know, I don't recall marking the day. I didn't mark the days off the calendar, you know, the 60 days. And I don't recall day 60 or 61 or 62. I think what happened was the bankruptcy went through. Things got a little bit better. The phone call stopped and it must've gotten just better enough that at day 61 or two, when my insurance was in force, I didn't, I didn't think about taking my life. I don't, I don't even recall the next time I had a suicidal thought after that. Um, It's something that I live with every day. That's the chronic suicidal ideation. Suicide for me and people like me, people in my tribe, is always an option on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. My car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. That's chronic (laughs) suicidal ideation. I know. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? No, it sounds very real. (laughs) Because I I think my car needs some repairs, so I'm going to have to think about (laughs) this. (laughs) Right. What type, What were you involved in as far as business or that, that uh, led to uh, bankruptcy? And I was doing corporate comedy, you know, the rubber chicken circuit, doing comedy after dinner, after lunch. <laughs> and 
I was making good money. I was making $5,000 a pop for 45 minutes of clean comedy after a meal. And then when the recession hit, the bookings dropped off 80%, practically overnight. And we had some negative cash flow in a couple of rental properties. Our house payment was over $2,000. And so we just ran out of money. They, you know, it wasn't making enough money to pay the bills. And so we had to finally pull the plug and, and file chapter seven. You said that you've been doing comedy for 37 years. So is yeah. that, was that a, a way of helping with your depression or is that something that came naturally? I mean, when did you crack your first joke? It is, it is as is the high cholesterol and the depression and thoughts of suicide in my DNA. My entire family is funny. I told my first joke in fourth grade. And the kids laughed. The teacher was hysterical. She had to go to the teacher's lounge. She was laughing so hard. And I thought to myself, at that moment, I'm going to be a comedian. And then 12th grade, I won the talent show doing stand-up. Nobody had ever done stand-up at the talent show before. And I told my mother I was going to be a comedian. And she said, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care. But you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, and then moved to the West Coast. And went to open mic night. Uh, I went to the West Coast to work for an insurance company. Went to my first open mic night. And that was the beginning of the end of my insurance career and the beginning of my comedy career. A year and a half later, I said to my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife of 35 years, I'm going on the road to do stand-up. Do you want to come along for the ride? Figured she'd go, oh, heck no. She goes, yeah. So we gave up our jobs, gave up our apartment, put everything in storage that couldn't fit into our tiny car. And we were on the road together, 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, seven years and change. Comedy club to comedy club and worked with a lot of people who are famous now. Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Jeff Foxworthy, Rosie, Ellen, Dr. Ken, Adam Sandler, Kevin James, Steve Harvey. Back when they were just comedians, road comics. And that's when I got the gig working with Leno. He was the permanent guest host of Tonight Show. Every now and then, Johnny would say he was going to take a week off Johnny Carson. And that man, Jay, the next week had four nights, 18 jokes a night for the monologue. And he had to come up with them over the weekend. So he started hiring road comics who wrote topical humor, you know, from the newspaper. And I would crank out 12 to 24 jokes a day as long as he needed them. And I was getting a couple in the monologue every week. And then when he took over the show for real, he let most of the contract labor go. But some of us stayed on until he left for CNBC. I believe I saw you in a physical, professional gym lifting weights. So what I want to ask you is the correlation between you get you getting your because you're a badass. Uh, I see that when you're in the gym, you're very serious about your discipline, about taking care of your body in order to handle stress. So if you could open the dialogue about that part of your life which you still do that'd be really really wonderful well you know because of my cardio issues i was already in the gym five or six days a week um i love the elliptical runner you know the one with the hands and the feet so you get the upper and the lower um i got to the point where i was doing it at the highest level of resistance 25 as a matter of fact when i had my heart attack I was in the woods a half mile from my car with the dogs by myself. I had T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service. So 
I had to walk out of the woods a half a mile and drive two miles home and survive a 25 minute ambulance ride to the hospital. And when my cardiologist, he and I are looking at my angiogram, which is when they run the probe in your femoral artery and they can see in real time, the heart attack is happening. And he said to me, you walked a half a mile, drove two, survived a 25 minute ambulance ride, having this heart attack. What have you been doing the last six months? Well, I said, I've been working the boats, the cruises. Each, every cruise has a gym, every boat. And I'm on the elliptical and I'm on there like 45 minutes to an hour at the highest resistance. And I said, you know this doc better than I do. If you put your heart under load every day, when there's an incident like that, what happens is something called vasodilation. If you have been putting it under load every day, when you have a heart attack, the veins and arteries around the heart expand as far as they possibly physically can to pump blood to the area of the heart that's under attack. And he said, that is why you are still alive. If you've been sitting on your family eating Cheetos, you'd be a dead man in the woods. So, so I'd been going to the gym, you know, for that reason. Somebody asked me on a ship one time, I see you on the elliptical every day. You're trying to live forever. No, I'm just planning on surviving the next heart attack. Uh, then I decided, because it was on my bucket list, that I wanted to be a bodybuilder and eventually go pro. But I've wanted that since I was 20. Remember the comic books, Charles Atlas ad in the back, guys getting sand kicked in his face. Do you remember those? Yes. I mean, I bought the course back then. And Joe Weider, I bought his course. And But I'm built like a bird. I'm actually, I actually look like a woman when I stand there in my little bikini underwear. I got my fine bones. You know, I'm not really bulky. So I figured, you know, if I wait till I'm 60 to do the bodybuilding, I bet every other man has quit. And I was right. There aren't many guys, even women, who bodybuild over the age of 60. So January 1st, 2018, I went on the keto diet. I began intermittent fasting and I, I upped my weights in the gym. I thought, listen, if I lift heavier, um, not, a ton, not a lot heavier, but just, you know, instead of 12 reps, maybe six to eight um, and do it more consistently, the, the uh, resistance training, I could enter a bodybuilding contest. And I did. I've been three bodybuilding contests and I've gotten a fourth a third, let's see, I've gotten a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth. This coming July, I'm aiming for my first first place, uh, over 60 masters. And then I'm hoping in October of next year to go to a larger contest where there are, or, are at least five men in my category. And if I win my category and there are five men, I get my pro card, my professional bodybuilding card, which is my ultimate goal. Dr. Fitness USA's vision is to create a stronger, healthier society of people enjoying vibrant health, unshakable self-confidence, and a sculpted body they'll fall in love with. Our custom-tailored formulas act as the GPS to your ultimate transformation so you can reach your destination faster and safer without injury. The Feminine Body Design program teaches a woman the art of strength training from a female perspective and helps her achieve the feminine physique she always dreamed of having. The Design Formula program teaches men to achieve a sculpted manly physique without injuries. Seniors can tap into the fountain of youth 
get a new lease on life, rebuild their strength, and eliminate aches and pains. Those with injuries learn to rehabilitate them, recover mobility, and relieve back, neck, shoulder, and knee pain. Now, with working with Steven, just in, what, four workouts, I think, so far, if that, um, I have no pain in my knees like I used to. Suddenly, a quietness in the mind, clarity. I mean, I don't have back pain anymore. It's amazing. It's just really amazing. I'm Bernie Durham, and I'm founder and chairman of CO Space International, and I so endorse Dr. Fitness for leaders that better lives. He does the inside and the outside to make sure you're the best leader you can ever be. And yesterday was already too late to say yes. If your mind can conceive it and your heart can believe it, then Dr. Fitness USA can help you achieve it. So I know there's cardiovascular and you can feel the rush of adrenaline. How does it feel to physically lift weights? And as the weights go up, how does that physically feel inside your body? Well, you know, I go for the burn as, as you know, go for the burn. Uh, and I don't, my line, and I, I meant it to be funny, was I don't lift a lot of weight. I lift weights a lot. I believe consistency beats commitment any day. I'm exercising seven days a week in some form or fashion. I think I told you guys, every morning I walk the dogs. And the, the trail we have chosen is straight uphill for over a mile. So I wear a 36-pound weight vest. And I walk a half an hour uphill with the vest on. I do what's called, I don't know if you're familiar with this, they call it fart licking. It's interval training. I walk, 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 watching my heart rate. When it gets to a certain point, you know, the top of the training range, I stop for about 10 or 15 seconds, let it drop 10 or 15 points, and then I walk again. Uh, because by the way, in cardio and cardiac issues, it's one thing to be able to get your heart rate up to a certain point. It's also important it comes down very quickly. <laughs> I learned that in my study of cardio issues. So, and I, I, of course, I had to walk back down the hill 30 minutes, unfortunately, wearing the 36-pound weight vest. So, and then I, then I, have, um, I have an elliptical runner at home. I've got uh, stretch bands, you know, the, the um, bands you use for resistance and some other, you know, some perfect push-ups. And I got an ab wheel. So I can pretty much work out at home on the, on the resistance side and the abs. And it just, you know, it, it allows me to do something completely different than my job of speaking. We talked about this off air. I can go to the gym and not say a word to anybody. I mean, I talk for a living, but the gym is, you know, you can, go, you can be mute and go in there and pump the iron. I just, you know, you see the results in the mirror. I, I enjoy the, you know, how my muscles feel as I'm lifting, as I try to do, I do a split. I do buys back and, and uh, traps one day, and I do tries, chest, and shoulders the second day, and then legs the third. And then sometimes I take a day off and then go back to the you know, three-day cycle. It's working for you because you look so young and handsome, way younger than your real years. How can this tie into people who have suicidal thoughts? Well, you know, when the pandemic started, I wrote a keynote called Social Distancing and Staying Sane. Don't worry so much about your mentally ill friends. And here's why. I realized 
after getting together with one of my mentally ill friends during the beginning of the pandemic, that we were well positioned to survive the pandemic because as a high functioning mentally ill people, all of us had a self-care plan in place, daily practices, daily practices. Because if you have a mental illness or two, you wake up in an uncertain world every day, whether there's a pandemic or not, you have to figure a way to get out of bed in the morning sometimes. And that's the self-care plan. And my self-care plan was very simple. And I, I talk about this when I speak on suicide prevention. I think, I think neurotypical, neuronormal people should have a self-care plan. Mine is simple, diet. I'm on the keto diet and I intermittent fast. Exercise, I exercise seven days a week. A good night's sleep. I think people discount how important a solid good night's sleep. It worries me when somebody brags, I can get by on three hours sleep a night. Oh, well, good for you. I'd rather have them brag, I got a solid eight last night because your body needs to reset. You know, the batteries need to be recharged. So diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation. I have a 29 minute guided meditation called the catnapper. It takes me down, relaxes me, and then comes out the other, you know, brings me back up the other side, relax, refresh. When I get to one, you will awaken. And I take a little bit of medication. Um, didn't take any medicine until I was 60. And I take the smallest amount. And my doctor, knowing that I was bodybuilding, he prescribed an antidepressant that doesn't make you gain weight. Bless his heart. So it, it doesn't make me gain weight. And it's very effective. I, after two weeks, my wife noticed the difference in my personality, but didn't say anything. At three weeks, I noticed and thought, why had I waited so long to take the antidepressant? People who take it love it and half hate it. So what I tell the people I'm keynoting for, if you're taking a medication, a psychotropic medication, and it's not working, they now have a DNA cheek swab test. They take your DNA and they try to match it to the psych med that works best with your metabolism. So there's a lot less of, let's try this. It didn't work taper off. Let's try this. Doesn't work. Taper off. It's not perfect, but it is a way to dial in and reduce the whole lab rat, you know, a feature of psychotropic medication. So fortunately, it worked for me right off the bat. I mean, within three weeks, and you know, it doesn't make me giddy. It just takes the edge off. And that's yeah. all I, you know, my doctor offered to bump it from 150 to 300 milligrams. I said, no, it's plenty. It's just enough for me to get by. Because when there is a, a mental problem or an issue that happens, of course, it affects everybody in your life, your wife, your parent, you know, everybody's affected. Mm. How did that uh, affect your relationship? And what tools did you use to mend the relationship? Like your wife, obviously, if she, if you have the, the gun in your mouth, you know, she... <laughs> It's not that funny for her, right? <laughs> I know we want to yeah. laugh. What would you say to the wives, siblings, and uh, relationships of, of the person that is having the suicidal thoughts? What would you say to them to help them cope? And what can they do? Good question. And my wife had no idea in 2010 that I had done that. She also had no idea that I was living with, with depression and chronic suicidal ideation. She didn't learn that until, until four years later when I did my first TEDx talk and I came out of the mental health closet on stage and she didn't see it live. She was at home, I was in Vancouver, BC. 
And so she's about to push play on YouTube when it went up on YouTube. And I said, stop. I need to tell you a half dozen things about me that you don't know that I don't want you to learn for the first time on that video. And so I encourage people who have mental illness to not to wait till they're 52 to come out to people they know, love and trust so that the people know what they're dealing with and then let them know what they can do to help. And in the U.S., there's a great organization called NAMI, National Alliance Mental Illness, N-A-M-I. And they have classes. If you have a child, let's say, who has schizoaffective disorder, they have a 12-week class for parents once a week. And you learn what to say and what not to say, what to do and what not to do in dealing with this child and how to find resources. And then they have a family-to-family you know, counseling group other families in a similar situation. And same thing for depression or bipolar disorder. And here's the best thing about NAMI, everything they do is free. So I would say if you're living with someone who has depression or schizoaffective disorder, I would look up your local county chapter of National Alliance of Mental Illness, and they've got all kinds of resources. So educate yourself about the illness because you know, neurotypical people Neuronormal people sometimes have difficulty wrapping their mind around how could life be so bad that you'd want to end it. And oftentimes they have the misperception that the person who is suicidal wants to die. Most suicidal people don't want to die. I didn't want to die. I simply wanted to end the pain. And that's the way it is for most people. I mean, there are situations where they for sure want to die. But in the majority of cases, it's just about ending the pain. So Educate yourself about the disorder and how you can help them when I, my, the guy I work out with in the gym is well aware of my mental health status. So it, it's wonderful when I go in the gym and he goes, how are you doing? And I, I can tell him I'm wretchedly depressed. And he goes, well, tell me what that looks like. And I would describe it to him. And he goes, well, tell me what I can do. I said, well, let's just work out hard and just be in there. Caring makes all the difference. But, but, but he, I only take it, get to take advantage of that because he knows, you know, what I'm going through and what I'm living with. So it's, it's very important for the family to be well aware. And, you know, because there's a stigma attached to mental illness. There's a separate stigma attached to thoughts of suicide. So it's a double stigma. Yes. Would you say that your exercise regimen, strength training and, and your your goals to become a bodybuilder and to win the competition and that drive that you have inside to, to be fit, does that uh, help lift your mood? Does that help stabilize your tendencies? Yes, I believe so. Um, it helps with my depression. There really is no help for the chronic suicidal ideation. That's just a, it's a coping mechanism. It's the way my brain is wired. If I'm under stress and I'm looking for a, a solution, it just, Option C, for some strange reason, is always, hey, or you could just kill yourself. So, but it helps the depression. And here's why. I, I believe activity, forward motion, helps with depression. Another technique I teach my audience is called gamification. Gamification. What I do if I'm having trouble getting out of the bed in the morning, I will make an actual physical list of to-do, a to-do list on paper with a pen. The old school. And because what I really like to do is lie in bed there and pull the covers over my head and, you know, and binge watch uh, some season of some show on Netflix. But I make a list 
and the game is as soon as I have gotten up and scratched off that last item, number six, I can go back to bed. I don't care if it's three in the afternoon, broad daylight and do what I really want to do all day long and binge watch Netflix. So you set it up so that you, you begin moving forward. It's not curative, but it is palliative. I believe forward motion, you know, accomplishing things, scratching things off the list. The gym, the same way. I have a deal with myself in the gym. Gym's 25 minutes away. My deal is if I get dressed out and go to the gym, get into the gym physically through the doors, all I have to do is one rep of one exercise. I can turn around and go home. Same, we have the same thing. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, that's our motto. Yeah, it's our yeah. motto. Go do one exercise, and then if you you're done, then go home, and we ne it never happens. Knowing it takes the pressure off, if you know, if you go in, you do one exercise, I'm done. And for some reason, I've never done it at the gym. I've always worked out an hour, an hour and a half once I got there. Something about getting there, all dressed out. Oh, well, what the hell? I'm here. Yeah. And then, of course, when you start, something kicks in, right? You just, like, I guess those endorphins start kicking, kicking in. And, yeah. Uh, okay, so where I was going with the questioning is uh, your choice of weapons, so to speak, is that you physically go to a gym. And I noticed that you go to a real gym. It could be just as easy to try and lift the dumbbell in your place of, of where you live, but you actually physically go to a gym. So, so for myself, when I go to a gym, uh, no matter how reluctant I might be, once I go there, I'm in a, an environment where I see a, I'm not really alone. I can be alone with myself, but there are people who are actually taking care of themselves. So I know factually that when our physical strength drops a certain percentage that we tend to be more emotional or more bent towards depression. If it goes too low, it could be towards suicidal. When you actually phys physically lift the weight, you can increase your strength 10, 15%. In your case, when you lift a 235 pound uh, barbell off an Olympic bar, you probably increased your strength around 35%. So when you finish that lift, I wanted to know if you noticed that your tendency to have an offset day is a lot stronger to have a more positive day. And uh, that's why you enjoy the benefit of strength training so much. Exactly. Uh, and part of it is that community, even if I don't speak to anyone, we're all in there with roughly the same set of goals. Uh, although I must tell you that um, I look at the, you know, the really big guys and I think, yeah, you're big, but do you have the testicular fortitude to take that body, put it on a pair of what amounts to bikini panties and stand in front of 200 people and flex? I'm guessing no. So not only does going to the gym have that impact on me, Having a goal, knowing in July, I've got my fourth bodybuilding contest. I'm working toward that. I want to look as good as absolutely possible. The first time I did it, Stephen, my only goal was not to embarrass myself. <laughs> so, but my goals are higher now. I'd like to get first place. But yeah, that whole process is, is uh, palliative for me. It, is, it, it makes my days are always better 
if I start, you know, by jacking the iron, as the, as the guys say. So what you're saying is that strength training in whatever form you do can help with the increase in strength, help you deal or cope or even get above uh, having a depressed day. The act of lifting. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in it's all about time under tension for your muscles. And the more time I spend with my muscles under tension, the better I feel. And like I said, it's a great way to start your day. It's a very positive way. You've done something positive yourself. I can look in the mirror. I can see the differences. I can see the changes. Um, it's definitely good for my mood. Um, and, it, and there is a bit of a high for the rest of the day. In, in part because um, I feel a little morally superior because doggone it, I made it to the gym. <laughs> I think you answered the question. So I, uh, a suggestion would be for people who have a depressed, <clears throat> a suggestion would be for somebody who has a depressed state or a tendency for suicide to uh, pay a visit to the gym and lift some weights. Yes, and you know, I've got a partner, but the great thing about the gym, and you know this too, and Batista, there are guys there, if, I, if I'm doing a, an exercise like I'm doing, um, you know, incline, uh, presses with dumbbells and I'm at the edge of my range of being able to get them in the air. You can say to the guy next to you, Hey man, do you mind spotting me? Perfect stranger. And they're all about it. They'll come right over and you know, they'll help you make that last two or three that you wouldn't have gotten without a little, just a little assistance. That's that, that community I think is also very helpful. Even if you don't know each other, but you see each other every day. Yes. Well, I want to thank you for sharing. It's been very uh, insightful. Frank, do you have any takeaways, like perhaps three takeaways that you could um, give our audience from what we discussed today? Yes. Number one, I believe when it comes to physical and mental health, that consistency beats commitment any day. I I don't lift a lot of weights, but I do lift weights a lot. And I have a self-care plan and I do it every day. So it's consistency. Number two, if you are living with a mental illness, I would encourage you to share that information with anyone you know, love and trust so that they can help you, you know, when you crash and burn, they know what you're going through and what to do. And number three, eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, which means the majority of people can be saved and want to be saved. And you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as we're doing here. And that is starting a conversation. Where can people reach you? Well, uh, they can go to thementalhealthcomedian.com, thementalhealthcomedian.com. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Dr. Fitness USA show. And I know that a lot of people are going to uh, be touched by your story. And, uh, and um, we're here to save lives. So thank you so much for being here. Well, my goal, Batista, is to save one life every day. So maybe we save somebody's life today. I... Sure hope so.